welcome to the Inclusive Leader Podcast. The practice of inclusive leadership enables us to tackle the complex challenges of our times. This is the space for conversations about inclusive leadership. I am your host, Jörg Schmitz, and I welcome you to this episode. You may know Laura Liswood from her book, The Loudest Duck, which is one of those key publications in the areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion. In her latest book, The Elephant and the Mouse, that was just recently published, she writes, We do need to acknowledge some hard truths as we scan the horizon of change and progress for diversity. We are definitely not there yet, and the rate of progress is not comforting. And she goes on to give some very specific statistics that demonstrate that while there has been some progress made in certain areas, it's really in the corporate sector that change has been sluggish, if not slow. Looking back at about 20 years of work, this is not insignificant. We continue to do diversity, equity, and inclusion work sometimes without actually recognizing what is working and what is not. And we keep doing the same things that are not necessarily associated with progress. So this opens up a whole host of questions as to what will make diversity, equity, and inclusion actually successful? What might we need to change in the way we do diversity, equity, and inclusion work? And how do we move beyond the illusion of inclusion and make the promises of a diverse and equitable workplace a reality? These are questions that Laura Liswood is directly and closely associated with, and it is my great pleasure to not only welcome her to the Institute, but also share this conversation with her, with you. Laura, first of all, it's a pleasure to, to, to just talk to you, as always, and I'm just curious, what do we need to know about ducks and elephants and mice, actually? It does seem, and Jörg, thank you for having me uh, in this conversation. You know, I very much admire all of the work you're doing, so it really is a pleasure to be here to have this conversation with you. Yeah, it seems like uh, a lot of my metaphors are animal-based when it comes to uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I, possibly because, you know, I was on the, the board of the Friends of the National Zoo in the United States, so <laughs> I got to see animal behavior and, you know, so when we talk about, let's start with the sort of the ducks uh, coming off of my book, The Loudest Duck. Um, what that was, was a metaphor for how potentially diversity can unlevel the playing field. That that heterogeneity without sufficient awareness and tools can cause more problem than less. And so this was... The, the notion that, you know, some people uh, are taught, I call it by grandma, you know, which is society, uh, that, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And, you know, often Americans know what that phrase means, you know, speak up and you get what you want kind of thing, which is a very, you know, kind of American, if you will, notion, but people recognize it. But then I say, but, you know, when I go to Japan, Nobody knows what that phrase means because they've been taught by grandma, the nail that sticks out gets hit on the head, right? Which is just the opposite of speak up and you get what you want. Women in societies all over the world have been taught if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And the Chinese have a phrase that the loudest duck, 
gets shot, <laughs> which is the opposite of the squeaky wheel. So then I pose to people. I say, okay, Jorg, you're the manager now. And you told me early on in our conversation, you, you prized diversity. You wanted it. And I say, okay, Jorg, you've got it. You've got a wheel, a duck, a nail, and a nice. <laughs> and, and then I say to you, okay, so given what they all mean, you know, who's doing most of the talking? And then you say, well, clearly it's got to be the wheel because that's what they've been taught. And I say, absolutely. But here's what's happening in your diverse workplace. You're overhearing the, the wheel. You're underhearing the nailed up nice. All those diversity of ideas you told me you wanted, you didn't get them. And so then I say, okay, what are you going to do about that? You know, how are you going to level that playing field? How are you going to stop overhearing the wheel and underhearing the nail duck nice? So that's how that duck, you know, metaphor came about. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's great because it's also playing with, 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 uh, I mean, first of all, duck metaphors are always safe, right? <laughs> you know, but also, um, it's <laughs> no pun intended. It hits a nail on the head. <laughs> yes. Because isn't that the the dilemma of of so many people in this diversity conversation? And 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 I, I love the metaphor as well because of where it comes from. I've done obviously like you a lot of global work, and Western managers so often are so. I mean, especially now we see this in this remote post COVID type of remote workplace. It's almost like the people who speak. You know, they get the attention. They're the saviors of the meeting because we're so afraid of awkward silence. And we don't know how to, or, or many people don't know to, how to interact with silence and how to read silence and uh, engage with that. So the loudest voice or the voice that takes the air will get preferential treatment because even sometimes because the, the manager themselves is deeply uncomfortable with when, the, when there are no voices. Right? That's exactly right. But then, of course, what happens is you, you, you're starting to move into more homogeneous thinking, right? Because you're only hearing certain kind of cultural types who, who are comfortable speaking up. So that's where, you know, and I don't want to get too prescriptive about it, but that's where a manager has to say, you know, hold on wheel. Let's hear from, you know, duck nail nice. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and it's such a simple thing to do, actually, right? It's paying attention to a different element and just reaching out, right? Enabling something. It's not, it's not complicated, actually. Right? That's the irony of many of these diversity, you know, things that would level the playing field, would make sure that, you know, we know that, for example, that some groups get more feedback than other groups. Yeah. So we know all of this stuff. The research is quite plentiful. And then it's the, okay, now that we know this, how are we going to, you know, how are we going to nudge people into doing actions? And, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of kind of the nudge notion, right? I think you are too, in that sort of behavior mode. Yes, absolutely. I try to nudge others and be a nudge actually <laughs> <laughs> of course i need to ask you about elephants and mice but because you didn't just stay with ducks but in in and and obviously this is about your latest book um the elephant and the mouse and 
in this later on, you quote Adam Grant, actually, and you say, and, and I'll read it for a moment, that he said, and which is very true, leading in a diverse world is a competence, not a nice-to-have skill. We need to understand how to skill people to lead in inclusive ways and to understand that leading in a diverse world creates new demands. And I, and I think this is such a perfect quote to encapsulate what I think you're doing with the elephant and the mouse of really shining the light on, yes, on one hand, these are relatively simple things to do, but they're actually more complex than meets the eye. And that we need to embrace what I call the ethos of inclusive leadership more, uh, more specifically. I mean, is that, am I interpreting you correctly there? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this has been, you know, this has been your theme for a very long time, York, which is, you know, you have to have this intentional leadership. You have to have this uh, inclusive leadership. You know, the, the, the skill sets that we thought were, you know, those that would make for great leaders, you know, probably never did, you know, it, it originally ever make for great leaders. But the diversity demands are, 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 as you say, shining a light, putting a magnifier onto what is it that actually makes us. You know, and you sometimes see this discussion when you get, you know, the issues of, you know, how men lead and how women lead. You know, you often see that in that kind of discussion. Now, I'm not an essentialist around, you know, all men are bad leaders, all women are good leaders, because that's definitely not the case. But, it, you know, it does mean that what are the things traditionally that have been accepted as tools for men leaders versus women or dominant group leaders versus non-dominant group leaders? And, you know, so then you hear things like compassion and inclusiveness and listening and curiosity, you know, all of those kinds of things start to, to, to now be equally as important as action orientation, as agency, as you know, assertiveness, all of those kinds of things, which we attribute to dominant group members. That's right. But all we're doing is saying, basically, what I'm saying, and I think you too are, that to be the, the, to be the kind of leader that can operate and get the best out of people in a diverse workplace, in a diverse society, just means you have to, inc you have to add more tools to your toolbox. The hammer isn't the only tool that's going to be worthwhile. <laughs> no, that's right. You need a repertoire. Yeah, a new repertoire, expand it. Right. And, and then also know when to use the differing tools. You know? And so the elephant and mouse, and you ask that, that comes from my strong belief that first and foremost, dominant group members, elephants, if you will, don't know much about non-dominant group members mice, if you will. But the mouse needs to know everything about the elephant, right? Yes. And so, you know, that original, that original concept came from the colonizer and the colonized. You know, colonizer don't really know much other than how to control the colonizer, the colonized. Colonized knows everything about the colonizer. It's a matter of survival. So that's the basic theme around that elephant mouse. And part of that theme is that to be a good leader now, you need to be both an elephant leader and a mouse leader. Because the mouse, it has more of that uh, emotional intelligence because it has to, you know, it has that sort of 
almost intuition. It's not an intuition. It's just a hypervigilance. But in a diverse workplace, you can no longer assume if you're a dominant group member that the world of the workplace works for others the way it works for you. That is such a great insight. Yeah. And that you, you as a leader must be much more aware of understanding of changing infrastructure, changing processes, when you discover that the lived experiences of others is not the same as your lived experiences. So that, let's just say, we'll use that, you know, great word meritocracy, right? Now, what you and I both know, we have never met anyone who said, I got to the top of this organization because I was subtly advantaged. Right. <laughs> You don't hear anybody. No. Nobody. I got to the top because this was a meritocracy. Exactly. And in fact, that I'm at the top is a great evidence that it is a meritocracy. I am I am the walking proof point right. that we are a meritocracy. Because, you know, one of those statistics that I love about men is that 76% of men believe they're above average. You kind of go... Okay, that doesn't even mathematically work. <laughs> I am disappointed that that secret is out. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. But, you know, how does that translate sometimes, incidentally, going down this path a little bit, is the that the confidence doesn't necessarily equal the competence. And that's where we get in trouble a lot when it comes to what we think of as great leadership, you know. And that one of the things that I think about when I think about what are the risks and rewards around diversity? One of the risks of not having heterogeneous groups is that risk of overconfidence of the homogeneous group. I mean, I think it's a fantastic, first of all, it's a fantastic metaphor because I was thinking of, of two things as you were speaking. One is the idea of who is agile in this, in this relationship, right? And we talk a lot about agility, and yet we are... We're, we're not thinking sometimes what are the cultural prerequisites, the experiential prerequisites for agility, actually. And if we've been, been the elephant or part of the elephant or a culture, society that is the elephant in the world or so, then we may talk about agility because we kind of know that we need it, but we, we have such a hard time being agile. The mouse is agile by default, right. which is why, why I think a lot of True innovation is found in, in places that actually have been resource constrained and that have had long histories of oppression oftentimes and so forth, because people had to actually be extremely innovative. And it was a way of survival and of living. And, you know, we in the more developed world have kind of lost that, that sense. We, we talk about it, but we don't live it necessarily. I think that's a, a really good addition to this, the notion that this agility of the mouse, if you will, of the non-dominant groups, um, stemming off of initially survival, but then you know making do with scarcer resources, making do with having to overcome so many you know hurdles within organizations, you know having to also being able to be more acutely aware, perhaps, of the uh, the downside of dominant leadership because you experience it. So, you know, it's, it's not necessarily guaranteed that you'll become more empathetic, 
but it certainly opens the door for it to, to understand that. I think what you're asking people to do, and I found this to be a challenge in my world, uh, in my work, is ultimately the perspective that we are offering or that, that you are offering in this book is a social perspective, a sociological perspective almost, right? And we're doing this in a world of management and leadership wisdom that is so heavily impacted by psychology that means focusing on the individual. We, we, we think of leadership as, a, as traits too often that we measure at the individual level. And obviously, neuroscience is, is, is yet another step in this individualistic, even though the, you know, neuroscience obviously has some broader application, but it's still a very psychological inward orientation rather than looking at the social context, the dynamics, as an important element in how we lead, what happens between people, what happens in interactions. I found that perspective, the psychological versus the sociological, to be almost two very different paradigms. And it's very difficult to get people to, who are raised in the psychological paradigm to actually embrace a more sociological paradigm. Using my own you know, particular way of, of thinking about that, because I absolutely agree with you. Uh, it, often, like in the individual focus, you get a lot of the fix the woman kind of thing, yes. you know, in organizations. You know, we got to just fix the minorities or fix the women. If we just did that, you know, kind of thing. So that's that individual focus. And the way I put it is I call it the seed in the soil. Seed being individual. And we all need to develop ourselves as individuals to grow, you know, because I often joke, who cares most about your career besides your mother? You know, <laughs> only you. <laughs> Some people respond to me and will say, oh, my manager cares most. And I'm going, oh, that's delusional. Oh, <laughs> that's a problem. We need to talk. <laughs> but then this, the soil, as you're discussing the institution or the society, you know, also needs to, that's, I call it a 50-50 deal here. And with organizations, I have found that possibly part of the reason that some of these efforts are so slow or so faltering is that they're less likely to focus on institutional and process changes versus the individual kind of things that, that get programmatic. And then you get, you get the subtitle of my book, Elephant and Mouse, The Illusion of Inclusion. Now, that's not orig original to me, it's Cheryl Kaiser's work, but it so captures what happens. You have this program for this group and this employee resource group and this and that, focus on the individual. And so all the senior leadership says, well, look at all these programs we're doing. Right? We must be a fair organization, in spite of the fact that the numbers don't show it. No, and, and that's, I mean, I, I love that in, in your book as well, I mean, where you uh, what do you call it? The hard truths, you know. I mean, I think it's a really a, a very good and balanced view of what's actually going on, and that there, yes, there is some progress, and yet there is none, <laughs> and, and this 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 contradictory experience of success. I, I found that to be really enlightening, and I, I love that you have such an empirically based and 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 fact based and and clear clear sight of this. You know, you're not. <laughs> and because there, the illusion of inclusion is running rampant in, in so many places. And there is a whole industry in holding up the illusion. And that is counter, 
active and undermines actually really good efforts and and obviously not just undermines it it, it counteracts the the best interests of the people it's it's pur- purporting to serve in many and this I completely agree and the second tier consequence of of that illusion of inclusion, we're doing all these programs, why aren't things getting better, is what we we both see, diversity fatigue. We see dominant group members thinking that that everything is now unfair to them. Uh, you know, they're, they're thinking that, th- that they don't have the opportunities. You know, uh, unfortunately, you know, I, remember, I remember this great study, and it really captures in my mind sort of this thought about takeaways versus you know, a fairness. Um, There's a study, uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was a study in the United States where there was a realization that teachers in, in schools were calling on the boys more than they were calling on the girls. So the, one of the, one of the uh, experiments was to tell, get the teachers to call on the boys and the girls equally, as best as possible, 50-50, boys, girls. They did it for a couple of months. Then they asked the boys what it was like. Now we're talking 50-50. Boys' response, the girls were getting all the attention. (laughs) All the attention. At 50-50. All the attention. So they had normalized equality at 70-30, 80-20. So when you start putting processes in place that diminish that subtle advantage, then it's not surprising that some people will say, this is a takeaway. In, in fact, I mean, we see this in society all the time. I mean, we talked about this earlier, how when change starts to happen, all of a sudden the majority group uh, or the privileged group feels uh, discriminated against, right? And e- even though factually none of that is true, but it's a deep-seated sense. And I also, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, the, that the, the role of status plays in our psychology and, and our makeup, our social makeup. And, and when we fear the loss of status, um, how vicious the reactions can be. And I, I oftentimes think about what does that mean for how, how this change, how, I mean, how, how this change towards inclusiveness and equity actually needs to be led so that you know, we don't create these these unnecessary uh, pushback and and regress as a result, because I, I mean we see this on so many levels. Oh, there's no question that there's some backlash going on, and not just in this particular topic, but you know, anywhere we we you're saying seeing this migration of status, you know, and, and loss of it. And I I remember a, a book by a woman named Virginia Valerian which was called Why So Slow. This was about women's progress. And she said it wasn't that men didn't want fairness. That was an objective that men could very much buy into fairness. But what really was troublesome for them and hard to accept was loss of centrality. And that, that, as you say, is a deep-seated emotion. That's not factual. That's not anything. And it's almost not even... You know, it's almost not something that you can't even take away, you know, or remove from people because it is so, as you said, so visceral, so deep-seated. You know, my hope is, is that if, for example, you say, you know, if your organization does an evaluation on meritocracy and, and it breaks up the data by groups and it turns out you have large gaps between the perceptions of meritocracy 
from dominant group members and historically underrepresented groups, and you have gaps in people's perception of meritocracy, that does mean that there are probably some people in the dominant group who are also not experiencing meritocracy. So that if you put into place these processes that remove subtle advantage, you are helping an organization improve itself. Everybody wins, actually. Everybody wins. And, and yeah. people can be, when you, I mean, in my, I see this in my work, people can, to your analogy of the elephant and the mouse, the mouse knows everything about the elephant. But, but elephants that don't feel like elephants or are not treated like elephants know, know that too, have that knowledge, and they can be very instrumental in bringing about that change. Yeah, you can basically believe that everyone at some time has been disadvantaged for some reason. You know, you didn't go to the right school. You didn't play the right sport, uh, you know. So if we can paint the picture such that we're trying to remove any of these kinds of things. And I think that the diversity, equity, and inclusion effort could do a better job yes. of explaining that what we're really doing here is just improving the workplace, the lived experiences of everyone in the organization. Yeah. Totally agree. So, Laura, I mean, out of curiosity, because I, you know, I mean, how, how did that become your focus? How did that become your, your life, in a sense? Well, you know, how did that... As a, how does one look at, you know, how does one pull the string of one's life to see where, where it all started, you know? Um, certainly, I can lay it uh, some uh, groundwork. When I was going through law school and then practicing law, you know, I did a fair amount of work on discrimination law. You know, in this case, it was gender discrimination. So that, you know, got me into that thinking mode, if you will. Although I I'd had a magazine for women and so, you know, these kinds of discussions would come up, but it got more structured, if you will, after law school. Uh, but then moving on, you know, working in the workplace, you know, having corporate jobs, I would say the next big sort of point of leverage for me was I had this really, I call it one of these in the shower questions, you know, and we have in the shower questions and they should stay in the shower. But this one was, at the time, what would it be like to have a woman president in the United States? That was just a thinking. And that wasn't completely arbitrary because I had read research that said that women in, well, in U.S. state legislatures legislated differently than men did. I thought, well, that's interesting. First quantitative study I'd ever seen. And so I thought, well, what would it be like if we had a woman president? In the United States. Well, at the time I was thinking of this, there was no one to ask in the United States, and there's still no one to ask in the United States. And we can just, you know, make hazard guesses as to when there will be somebody to ask. But nevertheless, at the time, there were 15 women living who had been president or prime minister or were president or prime minister of their country. So I thought, well, perhaps I could meet one of them and ask what it was like to lead her country. Having truthfully, or no idea how I could meet a woman president or prime minister. But as I often tell young women, if you never ask for something, the answer is always no. So I asked for these interviews. I got all the interviews. There were 15 of them. I got all 15. Nobody turned me down. Well, Margaret Thatcher said, come back after you've met everyone else. <laughs> That's her way of getting rid of me. Uh, and uh, But at 14 other prime ministers and presidents, 
I did get my interview with Margaret Thatcher. That's great. Yeah, did a book and a documentary on it, but heard so many similar stories. And this is to your point about society. I heard so many of the same stories of how the public treated women, the over scrutiny, the tolerance, less tolerance for mistakes, the press questions. It was a common theme amongst no matter what country, you know. And so I asked them if they wanted to meet. They said they did. And, you know, one of the things that happens and why I do like employee resource groups to a certain extent is that if you have someone else, you can ask, is this happening to you? Yes. If you don't, for women and other groups, they think there's something pathologically wrong with them. Rather than understanding, to your point, that society is causing these things. Yes. These are societal issues, not individual issues. Right? These, are, these are societal issues based on archetypes of what we have about people and what roles we think people can play, etc. Yeah, or the structure we are in. Or the structures, the laws, all of the kind of cultural norms, all the kinds of things that, you know, enforce certain behaviors. Anyway, we all met uh, in, not all, Margaret Thatcher didn't come. Uh, we met in Stockholm. We had a, a meeting there. I proposed a council of these women leaders. They created a council. And the council's been in existence since then. And I'm secretary general. And now there are 86 women who are presidents and prime ministers of this council. And I'll tell you what propelled me on to thinking about this in a broader context. And I'll just, it's a little bit of a story, but we first put the council at the Kennedy School at Harvard. And there's a, at the Kennedy Park, Kennedy School Park, there is a granite slab with a quote from John F. Kennedy on it, an engraved quote. And I read it every day because I'd walk past that to my office. And let me tell you what it was. It said, when at some future date, the high court of history sits in judgment of each one of us, our success or failure in whatever office we hold will be measured by the answers to four questions. Were we currently men of courage? Were we currently men of dedication? Were we currently men of integrity? Were we currently men of justice? And I'd read that. And I'd think to myself, such good questions to ask men. <laughs> such great questions to ask women, too. <laughs> so that's what started getting me thinking more and more. Because then I would start talking to men from historically underrepresented groups or intersectional women from historically underrepresented groups and began to see that, hey, these dynamics of dominance and non-dominance play out across the board. And that propelled me into that next phase of thinking about diversity. Because you know, when I kind of was going through all of this, the most of the focus was on gender. It hadn't yet evolved to race or other issues that, that it certainly did evolve into. Uh, but once you started looking at all of these categories, you know, you began to see the, the overlap. And the pattern is the same. Pattern is the same. That when, once I got to that epiphany, that just opened up the aperture for me to think about diversity efforts. What, what a phenomenal story, actually. I mean, first of all, it's great to have a shower, you know, <laughs> then, because without the shower, you wouldn't have thought about this, presumably, right? And, but it's also, I mean, a great example of, of tenacity. Just you saw a gap, you saw a question, and you didn't let it go. And now you, you, you convene <laughs> 86 heads of, of state 
right? I mean, what a what a phenomenal uh, accomplishment! I I, th- I think it's it's a it's such a fantastic story. And in a funny way, the story continues um, in a in a sense of learning experiences for me because the, the next sort of phase around some of this was that I was uh, working for Goldman Sachs on nine eleven in the United States. And I decided I wanted to become a first responder. And Goldman was very supportive of me. So I actually spent 10 months in the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Academy to become a police officer. I became a sworn police officer in the District of Columbia. But it was amazing to me how much some of these things, these tenets of diversity, I could see playing out both positively and tragically in the police force. Because I remember in the academy, one of the first things they said to us, they said to us, your most dangerous weapon was not your service weapon, gun. Your most dangerous weapon was not your service weapon. Your most dangerous weapon were your unconscious words. You act, react, think, behave, speak unconsciously in your workplace. It is guaranteed you will get yourself and others into trouble. And, And we see this not in that sort of level of tragedy that can happen, but we see this in workplaces. The people act, react, think, behave, speak unconsciously all the time. All the time. And what worries me actually is that just earlier before we we, we met, um, I did a session for an organization that was, I mean, just like many organizations right now, I would say it's a severely stressed organization. People are just bombarded with, I mean, obviously crisis in the world right now that you really can control. But then you're bombarded with whether it's price cuts, material shortages, you know, more demands, people leaving, sick days, illness, whatever it is. So severely stressed environments. And I think when we are on under stress, under that extra stress, it's so much harder to actually heed that advice. And layer on top of that... You know, all of these things that we know from the research, the unconscious biases, the unconscious perspectives, unconscious perceptions, unconscious association, all those things we bring in unconsciously already on top of what you've just layered, which are all the unconscious and conscious stresses that are going on. And it's not surprising that people, that the progress we want is not being made. And, you know, and one of the other things that I learned is in the police was and I you you saw it in in one of my chapters in the Elephant Mouse where I called for human and non-human help. And you know, when you're a police officer, you are trained, even even you know, although I will say absolutely it does not always happen, tragically, um, but you are trained for active intervention, you know, active bystander intervention. Right. So you look and you say, why isn't this other police officer intervening in the behavior of another police officer? You know, we've horrifically seen when that does not happen. But, you know, taking it into a less dangerous place, but nevertheless, I think that we need to go far beyond sort of this allyship. Yes. (laughs) You know, ally, great. Okay, fine. You know, but it's a little too, it's a little too mushy for me to use a technical term. (laughs) I, I want more behaviors. I want more acute behaviors. I want the active intervention. I want what I call, you know, wingman, wing person kind of things. I want independent evaluators looking in on 
the dynamics of processes. And feedback, right? Honest feedback that is not meant to punish, but to improve. Right. So because, you know, and because we all have those blind spots and, 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 and whatnot. And I think that, that is so important. That is so important. And I also struggle with the idea of allyship. It, it is a feel good term, but is it moving anything? Right. But are we making it specific and concrete enough? And are we enabling it in the system? And, and I think we leave people really off the hook that, you know, someone says, oh, well, I'm an ally. Well, you know. Okay, who wouldn't be? Kind of right. like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I want people to, to step in. When they, they see, for example, it's small, but it's impactful. When they see someone getting interrupted in a meeting, when they see somebody's idea being claimed by somebody else, you know, when they see someone who's quiet, you know, so they actively intervene. This doesn't have to be the manager. This can be, you know, you and me in the meeting. You know, where we say, where I say, you know, I know York's the expert on this. So we haven't really heard from him. So let's let's hear from him. It, literally a, an af, a, a, a step that make, moves the needle. Well, I, I always equate that a little bit to the to the and I know that you think a lot about safety and, and, and quality as movements that actually that we need to look at when it comes to what, you know, institutionalizing and ingraining and embedding inclusiveness and, and equity. Um, but I, I always think it's like in the, in the quality in manufacturing, right? Everybody is empowered to stop the line when there is a defect, everyone. And so it's very much like that because in managerial, in companies, our work gets done in meetings and through communication and whatnot. And when we see something that is clearly substandard and doesn't meet our expectations of quality interactions, quality environments, everybody should be, be empowered to stop the process and course correct and intervene. So I, I love that analogy and, and that call to action, to more rigorous action that you're voicing here. And yes, and the quality, you know, the safety, we cannot, we're not talking psychological safety, as important as that is, we're literally talking safety. Airplanes not falling out of the sky, you know, babies not getting dropped out, out of cribs, chemical plants not exploding. You know, kind of thing. And you hear companies say, you know, safety is our number one priority. Right. And then what what does that include? Senior leadership, total commitment to it, accountability by everyone, rewards and, you know, potentially punishments. Also daily rituals. You know, there are a lot of rituals in safety organizations. Yeah. But they're trained and they're constantly trained. Yes. And they're constantly reinforced. And as you said, you know, if you are the person on the line, you know, you're not the supervisor, you're not the CEO, you can stop the line because you have that power to do that. And it's transparent and everybody knows what the safety numbers are. And nobody says, boy, have we got safety fatigue. I'm really done with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nobody says that, right? Absolutely. Because they, they realize that the essence of whatever it is that they're doing relies upon the safety. So you're right. And, you know, if we could get more people to think of it in terms of that, you know, that safety of interventions, that quality of leadership, that quality of the dynamics within an organization. Yeah, I, I think it would, again, cast a different light rather than people seeing this as an undue burden that doesn't make it, you know, so for what reason? 
Laura, yeah. It, so first of all, I am I am so excited to have you part of this institute and what we're doing here. You know, and I'm deeply honored because somebody with your expertise, your clarity, um, your your voice of reason, as I will call it, is hard to find in the mix of you know people out there. And and you know, I mean, I know that within this institute, people have will have more opportunities to hear from you and 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 to meet you and and engage with you. But is there maybe one takeaway where you say, out of all your learning, also meeting all these powerful women in the world, and you know, very few people probably can have that as a as a frame of reference and ex- experience. Is there is there one or two things that? That people can really use tomorrow, that or, or an insight that that is actually actionable. Well, first off, let me um, applaud you, York, for creating this institute, seeing the need for it, understanding if there's a gap in sort of how these you know these programs and these organizations go about doing things, and the insightfulness of what you you're you're putting into this institute. So it's it's a real honor and privilege for me to be part of this. So thank you for that. And I truly look forward to, you know, having many more of these kinds of interactions because uh, we know that there are a lot of like-minded people out there who want to to make the kind of changes we both have been talking about. So to be able to be part of that is really, is really a privilege for me. So thank you for that. When you ask for this kind of one thing or, you <laughs> I know. know, I just, it's, it's never, it's never as, as, as easy um, as I would like it to be, because, you know, I just, I think that we have to understand that in any organization, everyone, everyone wants, generally speaking, everyone wants to do their best. Everyone wants to be part of a successful organization. They want to feel, sometimes you hear this phrase, their authentic self. Everyone wants to be able to feel like they're making a a great contribution in an organization. And so to me, the purpose of things like DE&I is to help ensure that everyone gets that opportunity to do that. that. I mean, we have way too many problems in this world to waste talent, to waste anyone's, you know, innovation and creativity. And one thing we do know you know, diversity creates innovation and creativity if done if done well. And there's where I see your institute coming in, the if done well part <laughs> of it. And that's the whole idea. Yeah, that's, that's the idea. So that's what I would say. See, you know, if we if we really look at this from the from a, from a philosophical purpose, you know, the planet is not going to survive without some really good, innovative, creative thinking, and that's going to come from all of us. Thank you for listening. You can sign up for more wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for the Inclusive Leader Podcast. To find out more about the Inclusive Leadership Institute, visit us at www.theinclusiveleadershipinstitute.com. Thank you.